Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time that we can come and reason together. I pray that you would bless us with understanding as we look into the scientific research and um, all of the studies that have been done on what happens to our minds while we're on tech. Lord, I ask that you would bless us with the Holy Spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, that's the original source of power is always go to God first, right? So a quick review. Yesterday, we looked at a short history of how the internet became. We discovered a majority of people on this planet are on the internet daily. One third of all internet searches are sadly for pornography. And that's a lot. 80% of every photo on the internet, the billions of photos, 80% of them are of naked women. One in four uh, United States teens who regularly log on to the internet receive unwanted sexual solicitations. One in four. Our children are being targeted by over half a million sexual pedophiles online every day. So we, as parents, grandparents, and adults who are working with youth, and if we happen to be a child of God, need to be careful with what we allow our eyes to behold on the internet and our search parameters we put in those Google search engines. We also learned that the statistics and problems apply not only to the youth, but to all of us. They're almost identical, except for the sexual solicitation that's higher for females and males in the group of 13 to 17. So today's message, we're going to continue on with the internet infection part two. And today we're going to be talking specifically about uh, what can happen to the human brain with an overdose of technology. Yesterday we looked at all the statistics to show conclusively that everybody is online just about, and many people actually are um, addicted. We're going to look at that today. Let's start with a very powerful National Geographic documentary hosted by Katie Couric. Now, Katie Couric, in case you don't know, is a veteran American journalist. In a program entitled America Inside Out, they recently aired an episode about your brain on tech because she was concerned and is. Katie shares in the show about her own fears of being addicted to her smartphone and decided to put her brain to the test. She, along with self-proclaimed tech addict Steve Aoki, went to California State University, Dominguez Hills, to meet with some of the world's top experts on tech addiction. Steve is a DJ, a producer, and a social media celebrity. He's one of the most connected people on the planet, with almost 23 million followers on social media and some time posts hundreds of times a day. He's also obsessed with the human brain and has a foundation committed to studying it. So in a conversation between Katie and Steve, she asked the question, well, actually she says, Katie, it's not an overstatement to say technology is your life, Steve. It's 100%. Not only on the production creation and performance side, he says, but also connecting with all my fans on social media. It's all technology. Katie, do you worry about what, do you worry what technology is doing to your brain? Steve, I'm always worried about my brain. This is the most precious thing I have. He's exactly right, my friends. 
Our brains are the most precious gift I believe that God has given us because after all, without the brain, there's no you. There's no consciousness. And this is how we, especially as Christians, should feel about our brains, no matter if you're in your 60s like Katie or in your 30s like Steve. If you're a a teenager anywhere in between, above or below these ages, our brains indeed are the most precious things we have. So we need to be careful with them. We need to guard them, don't you think? Katie goes on to say, you know that ad, this is a brain on drugs? She says, we're going to find out what our brain looks like on tech. So at CSU, the research professors of psychology, Mark Carrier, Larry Rosen, and chair and professor of communications, Nancy Cheever, on people's addiction to technology, particularly smartphones and social media, continues to attract media attention. Cheever and Carrier, they perform experiments that tested Couric's and Aoki's brains when distracted by their smartphones. Later, Couric sat down with Rosen to discuss the impact of this kind of increased technology. The first experiment was to measure uh, physiological arousal of how smartphones affect our anxiety level. So that's the first test. And as Katie and Steve watched a video, a computer tracked their heart rate and perspiration. Unbeknownst to them, they arranged to have someone occasionally text them. At every ding of that text, the blue line on the monitor screen spiked. It indicated fluctuations in their anxiety, caused partly by the release of our stress hormone known as cortisol. Steve said, I kept telling my brain, block the phone out, block it out, so he could concentrate. Katie was worried, all right, who's trying to to reach me? Did my daughter need me, or does one of my producers need me? And so every time the phone just simply dinged, even though it wasn't in their hand, it was just right there, and they could see it and they could hear it, every time it dinged, they were releasing cortisol. It's the brain is now stressed when we cannot answer our phones. Our, Our brains are changing, and you'll see that as we progress today. Dr. Cheever explained what what's happening is when the phone goes off, you start obsessing about it. If we're in this constant state of anxiety for a long period of time, it can have effects like sleep disorders, depression, and it can result in adrenal overload. Did you know this is what's happening to us with our phones and all these texts, all these dings, all these notifications? I I didn't realize it until my wife and I began studying this out. You literally feel fatigued. It's true. By the time you get to the end of the day, you are wiped out. And people are saying, what is it? Why am I so tired? What's going on? I'm still eating well. I'm drinking my water. I'm getting rest. But I'm just wiped out. Because all day long, ding, 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 and your brain goes, uh, 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 and it stresses out. And then people get stressed with you if you don't answer them right away. I mean, right away. Am I right? Yeah, it's crazy. He said, unfortunately, you feel like you can have that adrenaline ode, you literally feel fatigued, like you just ran a marathon, but you didn't. It's all in your brain. Here are the results. This is kind of interesting. Katie had multiple peaks 
where the subsequent ones were greater. So as she's sitting there watching this video, and they keep texting her, and her phone's just bing, bing, or zzz, they every subsequent ding, her line, that blue line, went higher and higher. She was getting more and more anxious because she was not able to answer it. Steve only had one peak, so his tactic of telling his brain to block it out, it actually was helpful. He made a decision. Ah, I'm going to block that out. This is the most important. Problem is, most of us don't make that hard decision. When, when my wife and I this afternoon were, were going over the, the last bit of slides here and just looking at the content and the flow of it and changing certain things, we put our phones in the other room turned on airplane mode. Why? Because even if they're in your, your, your sight, it causes stress. We, turn, we closed our email application so all those notifications don't keep popping up on your screen. Why? What happens? It stresses you out. It was wonderful how much I could concentrate. We'll look at that coming up. Dr. Cheever told Katie, if just hearing your phone is causing this type of reaction, then try putting your phone away for a couple of hours a day. And some people would say, I could never. Friends, we just might need to. The second test looked at how phones affect our ability to concentrate. So the first one was testing our physiological response to this, this stressor, the, the, the um, text coming in. The second test looked at how our phones affect our ability to concentrate. So now they were hooked up to read the activity of their prefrontal cortexes. You know what your prefrontal cortex is, right? Especially if you watched our music seminar. The reality is, the front part of the brain, this is where our character is. This is where our consciousness is. This is the executive decision-making center of the brain. We'll look at that a little bit more in detail. Measuring across 16 different sections of the brain, they were measuring to see how hard that they needed to work in order to focus. So they had to complete a test of series, excuse me, a series of tests uninterrupted. So they went through the same test and they had to go through and go through it uninterrupted so they got a baseline. And then again, this time, but with the iPhone in the room. This is very interesting. Here are the results. Now, if you look, this is Katie's brain when she went through the test the first time. See the little orange dots? That there is the actual brain lighting up, real-time 3D analysis of what was going on in their brains. And this is while she was concentrating without her phone. So in other words, when we compare it with the, the second slide we're going to put up here, we're going to see a difference. Do you see all of that brain activity, all the orange lighting up? It was 25% more difficult for Katie to focus on what she was seeing on the screen just because her phone was present. Isn't that incredible? Now look at this. Steve's brain image. Here it is, lit up in the front. And of course, it's the prefrontal cortex. This is where we are. This is careful, and you must understand this. The prefrontal cortex, this is where we're filtering according to all of our beliefs and what we understand and morally as people. So it, it's getting harder and harder to concentrate while the phone is present. Then, friends, more stuff is going to slip in, if you will, through that filter because we're, we're so distracted, and as we look at this thing or look at that thing, we're not going to function at the level that we normally would and filter out what we shouldn't. So look at Steve's brain. This is incredible. So this is his brain concentrating without his phone, and here's an image of Steve's brain activity while concentrating with his phone dinging. It was two 
100% more difficult for the self-proclaimed tech addict. That's significant, my friends. So this, this tech addict who is having these challenges with his smartphone, his brain is working twice as hard to be able to concentrate on just a simple task at hand. So Katie asked Dr. Courier, well, what does this all tell you? And so here's what Dr. Courier says. He says, with this technology, you don't even feel that your brain had to work harder, though it can be shown in the data. And then Couric says, so multitask, multitasking is a myth, basically? Most psychologists accept that it is impossible to perform many tasks at the same time. Your brain has some fundamental limitations. Multitasking is mostly a myth. It may take us more time to finish complicated tasks because of our devices. Even just present in your view, it can be distracting. Continuing, he says, that's because of the thoughts you have about the phone. You actually have to inhibit those thoughts in order to be productive. Katie and Steve both showed signs of being addicted to their phones. Now, while Steve's concentration was much more impacted, they showed signs of both being addicted, perhaps Steve at a, at a, a, a higher rate or a more dangerous rate. So the doctors and scientists recommended that they both take time away from their phone by implementing a tech-free time for two hours each day. In fact, what's cool is after they went through this, and by the way, tech-free time means it's not in your view and you can't hear it. Like literally putting it away or powering it off and it, you don't even see it. Put it away. Put it in a basket. Maybe you don't even have the basket in the room because then you're going to be thinking about it. There's reasons for this. It's because it's addicting, which we will show in a few minutes. So they both, after going through this, were pretty radically changed and they said, you know what? They made a pact with each other that they would embrace a two-hour-a-day tech-free zone. So they understood that these devices were impacting their minds in such a way that both of them were concerned. They were concerned that they would not be able to concentrate. And, and imagine, as a, as a reporter, you better be concentrating. As a, as a physician, you better be concentrating. Driving down the road, you better be concentrating. Amen? Even that thing bzz, bzz, in your car, how many of us are tempted to pick it up and just look at what was texted to us? So it's not only that the device is a problem, but the device in our presence can even be pulling our, our attention from things like driving a 5,000-pound car hurling down the road at 70 miles an hour, and we can kill somebody. Indeed, many, many souls have been uh, killed because of tech in the cars. So what's interesting is the more we look at it, the more we study it, the more we realize that technology can impact us on every single level. You think it's impacting us as Christians? You think it can impact us spiritually? When we get into what we're going to talk about tomorrow, it's called brain hacking. When we get into that tomorrow, I think, frankly, the hairs will stand up on your head. It's incredible what major corporations are doing to hack our brains. So, realize this. Even after we unplug, many internet users feel a craving for the stimulation received from gadgets. Why is that so? Because the culprit is dopamine. 
You see, these companies have learned how to create the apps. They've learned how to create this in the social media environment. They've learned to create the computer uh, an interface that we use on our computers every day, the, the UI, the user interface, to where it releases this dopamine. And dopamine is a God-given, beautiful neurotransmitter. And it helps to control the brain's reward and pleasure center. But the problem is, have you ever seen the experiment where they'll take little animal, lab animals and they will put, uh, they'll put like a, a little, little switch, uh, switch number one and switch number two, and switch number one, the animal learns, hey, if I hit that, I get a little pebble of food, and the other one is, if I hit this, I actually get a pebble of food that has laced with drugs. What happens is when the, the, little, the little animal hits that drug, before you know it, they go back to that again, and they're not coming even over here for food anymore, and they keep going and going and hitting and hitting and hitting the switch because they want that dopamine release. Well, what's happening, my friends, with the media we engage in, and more specifically, even being on these devices with different apps that have been designed by people that understand our neurobiology and how the brain functions, is now we are not just content with watching for just a little bit of time or searching for a little bit of time. All of a sudden, we keep hitting that button, that little switch, and we're getting dopamine, 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 dopamine. Even when you scroll down on Facebook, did you know that it is set up for scrolling on purpose? You're not clicking from page to page. It's the scrolling alone that starts to release the dopamine because you don't know what's coming up and, and what's grandma doing or what's so-and-so doing. And then you find it and go, oh, can we read it? Oh, wow. You get that dopamine hit. Everything has been engineered to keep us on the devices. Why would that be? Because advertisers with pop-up ads are paying lots of money for your eyeballs. And so companies can say the average person on Facebook watch is on screen for X amount of time. Now they can codify that and extrapolate that out to where here's what we're going to charge you to put up an ad. So dopamine helps regulate emotional responses, which of course emotional responses we all have. But friends, if, it's, if our emotional responses are not under the control of that executive branch of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, then we're going to react from an instinctual, to use a term, reactionary process of the brain rather than an intellectual response. Where Jesus says, if somebody you know, slaps you across the face, basically, that you're supposed to punch him out. No, that's not what the Word of God says, right? So what do we do? We're supposed to process in the frontal lobe that we're going to turn that other cheek. Because if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, the Bible also says. So the reality is, if we are constantly allowing the brain to hit this dopamine level, and we'll get into later uh, this week, it also causes other challenges to where you're not processing on the level that you need to be. So all of this soul-converting experience and information starts to change who you are fundamentally. So, it regulates emotional responses. It enables us to not only see rewards, but to take action to move forward toward them. You see, when you're playing different games on, on, your, on your devices, there's always a reward you know, Candy Crush and all these things that, that are literally people are, are obsessed with playing these games. 
and then they lock you out on purpose to where you cannot even play to the next level. And what does that do? It creates anxiety because you're not playing Candy Crush. And then you get that dopamine release when it notifies you, you can play again. It's pure mental manipulation. And I believe it's of the devil because God has never manipulated one soul on this planet or in this universe. He wants us to make free decisions. The devil wants to force us into submission and give over that, that, that beautiful, tender, prefrontal cortex where we discern the still, small voice of God. So, not only does the, the dopamine hitting that, that prefrontal cortex help us to see reward and to take action to move toward them, but without this feeling, this good feeling chemical, if you will, one can experience a bunch of other symptoms. So here's what happens. We keep pushing that little, that little lever, right? Like that, that lab mouse. And, and we want that drug. Our brain loves dopamine. Dopamine's great. Friends, when you go out and exercise, you're going to have a dopamine release. That's fantastic. It's wonderful. That's, God, that's God's given way to have that release, right? Because it, it, it benefits every part of your, of your brain. There's other chemicals that are, are released as well. But what this does is this is releasing it in a way that eventually you can have exhaustion and fatigue like we talked about. In fact, here's a list of what we can experience when we, when we juice, if you will, we keep juicing that dopamine. Because if I don't have it now, and I don't have an artificial way to stimulate it, we can actually have fatigue, lack of motivation, inability to experience pleasure. Who is behind that? Amen. The devil doesn't even want you to experience pleasure. Frankly, he says, of the, all the lust of the flesh, yeah, you can experience whatever you want. He's even trying to take that away from you. Insomnia. Hard time getting going in the morning. Mood swings. Forgetfulness. You know what? I can tell, I know my brain has been hijacked at times because at 49 years old, it seems like I have Alzheimer's sometimes. What happened to my brain? What happened to my memory? And so now, I'm starting to understand my brain was hijacked. Can anybody relate? Come on now. Only the honest ones, right? At least the honest ones on tech. Memory loss. Inability to focus and concentrate. Inability, this breaks my heart, to connect with others. Yet the big claim, and we'll look at this tomorrow when we dive into social media, the big claim of social media is... The, it's hyper-connectivity. But friends, that doesn't mean communion. That doesn't mean real connection. It's just hyper-connectivity at a surface level. It all, you can also have a problem with low libido, sugar cravings, interestingly enough, caffeine cravings. Why, why do you think caffeine? Because caffeine releases the dopamine. We actually get addicted to it. Inability to handle stress and inability to lose weight. So you can see if we're not starting to, if we're not continually getting our fix, our tech fix, the challenges become myriad and we have major issues that we can be battling and dealing with. So tomorrow we will talk more about dopamine and specifically how it works and specifically how this hijacking of our brain takes place. So, this is an interesting thing. 
um, there was a wife of a heavy technology user, and she notes specifically, maybe some wives here might have the same testimony, my husband is crotchety and upset and frustrated until he gets his online fix. Maybe, maybe the wives can have that problem, maybe the children. In fact, all of us do, my friends. After spending time online, your brain wants to get back on for more of the fix, making it difficult to concentrate on other tasks and to unplug. Scientists are finding specifically in countless studies now. You know what's interesting? My wife and I put a study together, a, a message like this together. It was smaller and shorter uh, quite a few years ago. And there was not, the jury was not out on a lot of this. And some people, even doctors would come up and go, you know, there's really not enough peer-reviewed articles and there were not some double-blind studies. Well, guess what? We have them all now. And what we were talking about a number of years ago has all come to fruition because I believe the Holy Spirit was leading because God knows, right? Here's some specific. So email, emails, phone calls, and other incoming information like text and different notifications, etc., can change how people think and behave. A New York Times article references several different studies on our lack of concentration. Quote, our ability to focus is being undermined by bursts of information. In fact, what they've discovered, and we'll go into it in a little bit more tomorrow, is that when we are uh, even, like let's say you're on, um, on Facebook or Snapchat or one of the different um, social media apps, what's interesting is every time you get likes or you get people doing a thumbs up or little emojis or what have you, what the companies have figured out is we don't just let it go all at the same time. What we do is we'll build up your anxiety when nobody's hitting the like button, when you're not getting all the emojis, when everyone's not going, oh, we really love what you're doing and what you're saying. So they will purposely hold them back to create that cortisol environment of stress, and then they will release in a burst a whole bunch of it. Oh, whoa, man, I just got 16 likes. That's incredible. There goes the dopamine. So we are like juicing our adrenals. We're juicing these chemicals in our body. It's complete manipulation. So when we think about these, um, these play a base impulse to respond to immediate opportunities and threats. So what happens is our ability to focus is being undermined by all of this stuff, all this information, and information bursts specifically. And these play a role, and I'll try to explain what this is talking about. This, these play a role to a base impulse to respond to immediate opportunities and threats. So what happens is we're, we're, we're responding, we're learning, and we're, we're getting juiced and milked of our responses that would naturally be anxiety-ridden. Let's say a dog's after you, you should have anxiety. And then you're going to get other chemicals that are released, like adrenaline and things, so you can run fast. Or a mom can pick up a car because it fell on her baby. You've heard of these crazy stories. So the body will do these things that it needs to survive. The problem is when you juice it and milk it all the time is then it, now it can't function properly anymore. And so now we're starting to react or non-react. We'll react uh, uh, like the fallen man would or we won't even have a response. It's called non-response. The stimulation provokes excitement, a dopamine squirt that researchers say can be addictive in its absence, people feel bored. That is like the biggest thing you will hear out of young people today, is that I am bored if they are not online or playing some sort of game. 
Why? Well, friends, how do we compare studying the Word of God with, the, with the, the, this old thing called a book? How do we compare? How do we compete with the excitement that we find on our devices? Indeed, you can't. So their brains are bored compared to tech. Adam Gazely, a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Francisco, said, the nonstop interactivity is one of the most significant shifts ever in the human environment. We were never meant to have this kind of nonstop interactivity 24-7. God's plan was you saw each other face to face and you had your interactivity. But now I can keep track of thousands and thousands. I mean, I have over 10,000 friends on Facebook. Friends, right? And they're keeping track of everything I do. If you look at my Facebook, I don't post very often. We post things about the ministry and what we might be doing, what's going on. But friends, I need to be very careful, as you do, that we don't, it doesn't become our necessity and our need to post. I don't really care that you just gave your cat a bath. I don't care that you're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But people will sit there and just watch. I would go to, I would go to young people and say, how come you're just sitting there watching a guy make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich while you're hungry and not making one for yourself? Right? Reading on, we are exposing our brains to an environment and asking them to do things we were not necessarily designed to do. We, all, we know already there are consequences. So new research is showing computer work uh, users at work, they will change their windows or check their email or other programs nearly 37 times an hour. That is insane. 30, that's almost, that's more than once a minute. You're, you're switching from the task at hand and going to other apps or you're going to email. Why? Because that task at hand, man, that thing is boring compared to the world out there on the internet. Productivity is at an all-time low in the world. While many people say multitasking makes them more productive, they say that, they claim, as a type A personality, I would pride myself on being able to multitask, multitask. The reality was, you're just juggling a bunch of balls, and you're not doing well at several things, rather than focusing on one and excelling. But even though they say they are more productive because they can multitask, research shows the contrary. Heavy multitaskers actually have more trouble focusing and shutting down and shutting out irreverent excuse me, irrelevant information, and they experience more stress. I can tell you, I used to be a hyper-stressed-out individual. And as you start to put that phone away and, and not respond, if somebody sends me a text, there is no rule in the world that says, I have to respond immediately. But what will happen, at least in my life, if somebody calls me, and I do not answer because I'm trying to focus, right? Then they will call me again. And then they will leave me an email. And then they will send me a text. And then they call somebody else and go, is Christian okay? Wait a second. I have a life outside of answering your urgent email that you wanted to ask me if this fake cheese was better than that fake cheese. Right? 
Because what one constitutes as an emergency many times is not. But what's happening is we are being trained and needing instant gratification every day, hundreds of times a day. And when we're denied, we get grumpy and upset and we want answers now. Where's that coming from? Our online experiences. Our device-laden world. That's what the research shows. What they found is that we, experience, we can't shut off, we can't focus that irreverent information, and this experience actually becomes even more stressful to us. In addition, scientists are discovering that even after multitasking ends, listen, fractured thinking and lack of focus persists. In other words, this is your brain also off of tech. When I remember a, a, a dear friend of mine who was well-to-do and had a great con, uh, construction company going, he said, I want to go on vacation with you, brother. And I said, well, well too. And he goes, let's go to Barbados. And I said, uh, brother, I work for the Lord, and I have a humble, modest income, and that would be out of the question. How about we go camping, right? And he said, no, 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 no. I want to take you and your family on vacation. Oh, well, that's different. Okay. He said, just get yourselves over there and I'll pay for everything else. All right. Well, good news is I travel around the world and I had a whole bunch of air miles and I was able to get the family there. Friends, do you know how long it took me to finally shut my mind down? It wasn't one day. It wasn't two days. Even though the phone was off, even though I didn't get on my computer and get all the notifications, it took me seven days. And I was, we were walking down along, the girls were looking at some, some t-shirts and stuff in, a, in a, a, a store, and my boys were putting on funny Jamaica hats, and we were just having a fun time. And I turned to my friend and I said, Kevin, and I literally went, oh. he said, what? I said, I just crossed over. What do you mean? I'm now relaxed. I don't have that stress hormone in me. I'm enjoying the simple things, fruit and squishy sand between my toes and body surfing in the ocean and not any tech devices. And all of a sudden I went, this is how the human being is supposed to feel. Can anybody relate? I know we can. We're all in the same boat together. We're all having the same problems and same distractions. Let's not let this digital life distract us from our maker. Nora Volkow, director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse and one of the world's leading brain scientists along with other researchers found the technology is rewiring our brains. It's not just changing how we act or think and what we do. It's actually rewiring the brains on a physiological level. She's, she and other researchers compared the lure of digital stimulation less to that of drugs and alcohol to that more of food and sex, which she says are essential but counterproductive in excess. So they're finding, there's, there's, there was a great debate. 
that they were saying, you know what, that internet addiction is just as, as addictive as, as drugs. And while the jury isn't 100% out on that, what they have discovered is there is addiction to these technologies and these online experiences and these games and these apps, but it's more akin, at least they can prove right now, to that of um, uh, food addictions and sex addictions. In a recent study from researchers at the University of British Columbia, they found that when people were limited to checking their emails just three times a day, their stress levels decreased significantly. People say, if you want to decrease your stress, go out and exercise. That is accurate. It'll help decrease your stress load in your mind. It increases the physiological stress load, but your body needs that to stay healthy. But what they're finding is, friends, if you stop checking your email all the time, all day long, just check it in the morning, afternoon, and evening, your stress level will significantly drop. So there you go. Put that in your toolbox. Who needs less stress in their life? We all do, right? We all do. I can't do that. What if my boss needs me? If it's something that important that can't wait three to four hours because you're already doing all the tasks undisturbed that he wants you to do or she wants you to do, then when you get back to him later at, at noon, you'll say, you know what, I was very focused on that project you gave me, and so I didn't answer my email right away. They're going to go, note to self, I like this person. So think about, oh, and reading on, the folks who limited their email checking also felt that they were more able to complete their most important work, and they felt a greater sense of accomplishment at work. Instead of being pulled, 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 you prioritize, you focus on the task at hand, you, and you answer your emails in a timely fashion a couple to, or a few times throughout the day, you'll walk away from work feeling like you accomplished more. Why? Because you did. You got further along on that project instead of going do, 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 with all of these projects, right? So think about the implications of this. Imagine that you've got an important project that's going to require you to think deeply on something, uh, maybe to write something, and overall requires a high level of cognition and concentration. It takes a little while to really get your brain in the groove, right? When you first sit down to write something, it, it doesn't just start happening immediately. You've you, you got to get in that groove. And let's say it takes you approximately, which this is what research shows, about 15 minutes to really get rolling. And that's what we call the setup cost to you. And every time that we pause to check an email, we have to pay the fiddler again. We have to pay that setup fee again. So picture yourself, you sit down, and you start to work. It takes about 15 minutes to get that ball rolling. And then you actually get writing, but lurking in the background of your mind is that nagging thought, I wonder if Bob has returned my email yet. Where does your focus go? And you know, we all, we all do that, right? I had it happen today. We were going to have lunch with some dear friends of ours that are speaking here as well. And so we set up a dinner, a lunch date today. And I had to text them and say, we, can't, we have to cancel. I need to do a little bit more work on this presentation before we at 2 o'clock. And so they had not responded to me immediately, right? And so I just left my phone there. I was so distracted, waiting to, how come they haven't answered you? Okay, I'm going to leave it. Lord, they know, they'll answer me. They're good, solid citizens. They'll answer, right? 
But until it dinged and I got confirmation, we understand, no problem, we're busy too, we can meet some other time. Then I shut it off and I got it out of my mind again. Why? Because I wanted to get back, I'll, I'll reinvest that cost of setup, another 15 minutes, and then I was flowing. It was working. Make sense? Now, the problem is, I, why, why did they text me? It was distracting me from concentrating. I go over the same slide or same information over and over and over again. So the problem is you try to push it away, and I was doing that, but it gnaws at you. A few minutes, you crack, and you stop writing on the big project and sneak a quick peek at your email. Unfortunately, Bob hasn't returned your email, so you turn back to your project, but now you've got to go through the 15-minute setup again to get your brain back on track and to gear up before you can start writing. And then another 10 minutes of writing, you'll once again get those nagging thoughts about the email, and so it goes on and on and on. In fact, this is pretty amazing. There's an abundance of research that shows that people don't concentrate as well when they are constantly interrupted. Oh, hello? Do we need research to prove that? And given our little example, it's pretty obvious why. Because it's too much of a distraction. Do you know that they say, on average, one email interruption or notification interruption, it takes the person, not 15 minutes, that's just to get you back to the place where you can focus. It takes about 27 minutes on average for the human being to get back to where they were before the interruption. So half of your day, if you're at work, is being interrupted by all these phone calls and all the texts and all this stuff. No wonder production is down here in America and around the world. In an article entitled Too Much Internet Use on the UK site Daily Mail Online, it was reported the overuse of the internet by teenagers is causing atrophy, that means shrinkage, of the gray matter, leading to concentration and memory problems. It's actually physiologically shrinking our brain. Excessive internet use may cause parts of teenagers' brains to waste away, the study reveals. Atrophy of gray matter, reading on, is the brain's Excuse me, in the brains of heavy internet users grew worse over time. So those who are just normal users, whatever that is, we don't know yet, compared to heavy users, the problem with the brain shrinkage, it continued to get worse as time progressed. This could affect their concentration and memory, as well as their ability to make decisions and set goals. It could also reduce their inhibitions and lead to inappropriate behavior. So what happens is we get that dopamine, 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 and we're releasing the hounds, if you will, all the time, all the time, all the time. And the problem is we're getting stressed out, so we have this cortisol, so we have this pulling back and forth, this milking back and forth of the brain, and it becomes fatiguing and exhausting. When we are fatigued and exhausted, the frontal lobe of the brain cannot function like it normally would. And so before you know it, an ad pops up with a half-naked lady, you click on it, and before you know it, you're going, how did I wind up here? Oh, for an hour, and you don't even realize that that hour passed. Why? Your brain has been hijacked. Is any of this making sense? Yeah? Is, is this concerning to anybody but me? It should concern us all, right? Indeed, yes. So let's look at, at the actuals. This was just referencing some, some quotes from the, from the article. But we researched and went deeper and found the study that the article was referring to. So let's look at that and a few others uh, and their findings. So researchers from China created a very interesting study where they took the MRI brain scans of late teens to young adult students 
both male and female, who were routine, routinely on the internet uh, or on their devices between 8 and 13 hours daily. You may say, that is crazy. We looked at the statistics yesterday. It was actually much worse than that. And unfortunately, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole summary was that they were, these kids, they had to be diagnosed with IAD, which is Internet Addiction Disorder. Did you know that there's disorders now? They're actually labeling them. A number of years ago, when we started this research, they weren't like, they were really careful to start coming up with these disorders or these syndromes. But now they're going, no, we have a problem. In the U.S., anyway. China, they're like, look, if we have a problem, we're going to try to fix it. The U.S., oh, no, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. Keep using everything, unfortunately. So here's the key point. We're not talking about work or the use of computer for school or work, but we're talking about 8 to 13 hours of free internet use. For instance, online gaming, social media, YouTube, uh, Facebook, etc. As a result of the studies done on the youth, it was astonishing what they found. There was also a control group, late teens to young adult students, male and female, and they played less than two hours per day. So we have that are, that are on their playing, do, when we say playing, do whatever they want to do in that free time between 8 and 13 hours and the control group less than two hours per day. Why? Why did, they not, why did they do a control group that was on freely for two hours a day? Because they find we live in this tech age and most people are not going to say, I'm never going to be on the internet. I'm not going to do something that I want to do because now we have, we have to live with it apparently. So what they're saying is, you know what? People that don't use that much about two hours a day is what they find, so that'll be our control group. So the control group stats. Multiple studies from 2011 to... I'm sorry, we just did the stats. So now let's look at some of these implications. Multiple studies, not just the one from China, from 2011 to 2013, which usage has gone up dramatically even since then, have shown atrophy, shrinkage, or loss of tissue volume in gray matter areas where processing occurs in internet and gaming addictions. So neuroimaging showed this excessive screen time damages the brain. In one set of MRI images focused on gray matter at the brain's wrinkled surface or cortex, where the processing of memory, emotion, speech, sight, hearing, and motor control occurs, they compared that gray matter between the two groups and they revealed that the atrophy within small regions of all of the online addicts' brains was present. So everyone that was on that study doing an 8 to 13, every single one without exception had shrinkage of the brain. That's significant, my friends. This means that both groups, in fact, what's interesting is the two groups, both of them had, I, I, misstated, I misstated that, both groups had shrinkage of the brain. While those on 8 to 13 hours, it was more significant, both had shrinkage of the brain. That, to me, is scary. So this means that both groups had shrinkage in the processing gray matter. And our brains were not designed for this kind of constant artificial stimulation. So what we're doing is we're paying a huge price in our brain, in our processing power, in our intellect, in our characters, compared to the overstimulating online experiences that we're all having versus that of having like a Bible study. 
you don't even desire it anymore. The Bible is boring, like we said before. The problem is we cannot, as a society, we cannot process and function intellectually anymore as a society as we once did. Our brains are being hijacked. And tomorrow, it'll, it'll, it'll blow your mind. So what's scary is, for the, we talked about digital immigrants versus digital natives, and our children are the digital natives because they grew up with the technology. We are digital immigrants, so our brains are being rewired, if you will, from what they even used to be. The digital immigrants, from the, little time, from the time they're little, it's already being wired that way, even though God had created differently. So let's look at specific areas of the brain that were affected. Specifically, areas affected included the frontal lobe, which governs executive functions such as planning, prioritizing, organizing, and impulse control. So the frontal lobe, like we said, is where our character is contained, where we obey, where we make moral decisions, and it's to be the king of the brain, my friends. And technology, listen to this, is starving and shrinking and rewiring the tender gray matter where we discern that still small voice of God. So here's the challenge. We are, we are basically giving the, the king of the brain, we're shrinking it and saying, we don't really care what you're supposed to be doing because we want the other areas of the brain, the other provinces of your kingdom to do whatever they want. Well, that's a problem when it comes to impulse control. That's a problem when it comes to desires to have sex outside your marriage. You see, instinctually, to use a base passion that's not under the control of the frontal moral lobe, we start making decisions that do not honor God and bring trouble and problems into our life. They also found volume loss was also seen in the striatum, which is involved in reward pathways and the suppression of socially unaccepted impulses. Has anybody seen an increase of cyberbullying? Yes. And just viciousness. Why? Because that part of the brain is having problems with all of this digital tech. And this is why we see that increase in cyberbullying and vicious attacks from people who are hiding behind their screens. Oh, you get a whole bunch more guts when you're not face-to-face with people. Our brains are literally not able to suppress the unacceptable impulses because of the damage that's taking place. Psychologists sociologists are terrified that our new digital natives in the very near future will not have the capacity for impulse control and moral decision making. And you know, when you think about what we were told would happen, you know, as is the days of Noah, so it shall be in the end of time, right? The days of, uh, in days. So at the days of Noah and the days of Lot, what was going on? There was this, this evil thought process continually. There were ev- the, it says that the minds of men were evil continually. Friends, we're told it's going to happen again. And I couldn't see how we get there. Oh, now I see it. Very clearly. And it terrifies me. Only because I'm part of it too. Not like I used to be, praise God. There's uh, a finding of particular concern was damage in an area known as the insula, which is involved in our capacity to develop empathy and compassion for others and our ability to integrate physical signals with emotion. 
So it's also hijacking that part of the brain to where I'm not even having empathy anymore. What happens is you get this what's called group intoxication. When someone starts to pounce on and jump on someone online, all these other people join in with the ringleader, and you're not even having empathy for that poor person that will probably go out now and unfortunately because of suicide rates being up 25% do something catastrophic. Continuing on. Aside from the obvious link to violent behavior, these skills dictate the depth and quality of personal relationships. Do you know how socially inept we're finding young people now? They can't even look you in the eyes. They don't even talk with one another. You put them in a room, most kids would just like, you know, just a generation or two ago, they'd start playing, maybe a little shy, but that's different than being socially inept. You follow what I'm saying? Shyness that comes, some people are. Some other people are not shy. But now we're socially awkward and inept. Why? Because we're not having the face-to-face time. You look at families now, they are actually sitting on their devices, not even orienting with one another. They're on these. Mom and dad aren't even having prayer time sometimes with kids anymore. So the scan showed that the longer the internet addiction continued, the more serious was the damage. Research has also demonstrated a loss of integrity to the brain's white matter. Did you know we have white matter? What's white matter? Spotty white matter translates into a loss of communication within the brain. Here's another physiological effect. Including connections to and from various lobes of the same hemisphere, links between the right and left hemisphere, and paths between higher cognitive and lower emotional survivor, uh, lower emotional and survival brain centers. So what this is basically saying is the communication that God designed in our beautiful, amazing brains, the links between, the physiological links between the two hemispheres, between different parts of the brain, they're having problems. The connections are being lost. This is why we're having the problem with empathy. So it's not just, I used to say, behold little eyes, be careful little eyes what you see, right? Because if you're looking at things of the devil and of the world, it will change who you are. Friends, it's not just the the actual content, it's the actual process. And it can be the actual devices. So friends, put them away for at least a couple hours a day. Save your brain. Is that enough? For some, no. In fact, what's happening is there's addiction centers popping up all around the world. They've been for many years in China and in Japan and other parts of the world. The United States just opened its first one, a private foundation, because of this gaming and internet addiction that is so prevalent. I think they're going to be all over the place. It's a literal problem. It's a real problem. So this white matter connects the networks from the brain also to the body and vice versa. So we're starting to have some some people having serious physiological problems and it could literally be because our brains are being rewired. Studies are still in depth going into that right now. A third part of the study showed impaired cognitive function. The study published in the PLOS 1 journal was carried out by neuroscientists and radiologists at universities and hospitals in China where 24 million youth are estimated to be addicted to the internet. The research, oh, I gotta go back and read this. Imaging studies have found less efficient information processing and reduced impulse inhibition 
increased sensitivity to rewards, and if we're not getting it, we're very sensitive about that, and insensitivity to loss. I don't really care. I haven't eaten. I'm staying right here. Oh, grandma died? Man, that's terrible. I'm back to it again. And abnormal spontaneous brain activity associated with poor task performance. The researchers, uh, the research authors, their summary of the neuroimaging findings in internet and gaming addiction says this. Taken together, talking about all the studies they did, those three studies, internet addiction is associated with structural and functional changes in the brain regions involving emotional processing, executive decision, attention, decision-making, and cognitive control. The research author's summary is startling. They're saying there's physiological problems. There's connectivity problems. We cannot function on the level that we once did. And friends, this has only been around for a little bit of time. What is it going to be like a decade from now? So, let's look at this internet addiction disorder. By the way, there are multiple names. They haven't landed on one specific one. Different groups use, or different countries even use different names. You'll know them if you hear them now. Internet use disorder, or IUD. Problematic internet use, PIU. And then you have compulsive internet use, CIU. Internet gaming disorder, IGD. Technology ad addiction, and I disorder. So, these are all basically the same thing. And what are all of these things? Excessive computer use that interferes with daily life. There are people who have, and now understand this is an extreme example, but there are people that have literally died playing their games. They have gone without eating and gone without water, and they die of starvation. And you go, no way, yes, I'm talking specifically in China. There have been multiple cases of people gaming themselves to death. To me, that almost seems impossible. But not when your brain has been hijacked. Not when you want that, to push that little button and get that feeling. They'd rather have that than eat, just like the little mad lab mice. And China gives the number, by the way, between 8 and 13 plus hours daily spent indiscriminately online. But time, my friends, can be comprised of not just gaming, it, of course, excessive online gaming, but excessive online shopping, compulsive online gambling. You know, my wife and I are on the road full-time now. We sold our home, and we are now, we bought a fifth wheel, and we're full-time on the road for the Lord. And we're trying to get this information into the minds of God's people, this and the music information that we have on the distraction dilemma, to get, return people back to sacred worship instead of this entertainment-laden worship style that's so prevalent today. And what's interesting is, as we travel around, we find that when we need product or different things, we'll use Amazon, for instance. They have made it so easy to do everything on Amazon, I literally go, I just paid, I just bought that? Like, one click, it's done. It's so fast and so easy. Return it? No problem, return it. I'm like, what's going on? And you almost get this sense of, well, what else do I need? That was easy right? That's what happens. Well, if I, if I just buy $10 more, I'll get free shipping and save that $5 of shipping. Compulsive online gambling, excessive blogging, 
uh, compulsive watching of internet videos and or pornography, excessive social networking. These are all part of that, that um, syndrome that we have now. So, in a current psychiatric, in, excuse me, in the current, this is the actual name of the periodical, uh, current psychiatric review, this is back from November 2012, it states, problematic computer use is a growing social issue which is being debated worldwide. Internet addiction disorder ruins the lives by causing neurological complications, physiological disturbances, and social problems. So surveys we found in the United States, Europe, and Asia have indicating an alarming prevalence in the rates of this, uh, these challenges, these problems. Both China and South Korea identified internet addiction as a significant public health threat back in 2008. They said we're having, they, they, they actually labeled it a public health problem. Dr. Victoria Dunkley, a child and adolescent psychiatrist and a writer of a for Psychology Today, poses a question in her article, too much screen time damages the brain. But what about, here's what she writes, but what about kids who aren't addicted per se? Addiction aside, a much broader concern that begs awareness is the risk that screen time is creating subtle damage even in children with, quote, regular exposure. Considering that the average child clocks in more than seven hours a day, as a practitioner, I observe that many of the children I see suffer from sensory overload lack of restorative sleep, and a hyper-aroused nervous system. Regardless of diagnosis, what I call electronic screen syndrome. So she's seeing it's not just that the brain's being hijacked and we're having those physiological problems, but we're having other problems, lack of sleep, sensory overload, hyper-aroused nervous system. No matter what you want to diagnose it, she's seeing these problems. Whether they're addicted or not, we're seeing it. These children are impulsive, she says, moody, and can't pay attention, much like the description of those diagnosed. Such sites as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are said to shorten attention spans, encourage instant gratification, and make young people more self-centered. But friends, don't fool yourselves. It's not just the young people that are struggling with these problems. Because guess what? We have the same brains as young people. Because we have the same creator, and he gave us this beautiful thing called a brain, and it's being hijacked, which we will prove tomorrow. It affects us older folks, too. A top neuroscientist, Dr. Greenfield's research uh, states, actually it makes disturbing reading for millions of people that, that have social lives, depending on the logging onto their different favorite websites each day. So when they're looking at this in her research, they're going, oh boy, this is me. But they do strike chords with parents and teachers who complain that many youngsters lack the ability to communicate or concentrate away from their, their screens. And she writes, we know how small babies need constant reassurance that they exist. Pretty interesting. Hey, baby. Hi, honey. Oh. And we're giving that constant reassurance. My fear is that these technologies are infantizing. <laughs> I knew, I, you know what, I was approaching that word and I knew I'd stumble it and therefore I stumbled, right? So, my fear is that these technologies are infantizing, infantizing, is that how you say it? 
Infantilizing, thank you very much. I, I, I only made it to the fourth grade. The brain into a state of small children who are affected by buzzing noises and bright lights, who have a small attention span and who live for the moment. And business owners are concerned about this because productivity in the workplace is down. And so while these social network sites are popular, they're of course extremely popular and profitable, a growing number of psychologists and neuroscientists believe that they may be doing more harm than good. Dr. Greenfield, uh, Greenfield adds, computer games and fast-paced TV shows were also a factor. It wasn't just being online and shopping and doing all the other kind of stuff that we looked at. It was talking about computer games and fast-paced edited TV shows. Continuing on, she says, I often wonder whether real conversation in any real time may eventually give way to these sanitized and easier screen dialogues. So what's happening is we're not even communicating face-to-face -face anymore, or even on the phone, frankly. We just want to text. And you know what uh, the researchers found uh, and, and, and engineers found? We need to give our texts some sort of context. So what did they do? They created these little things called emojis. So if I'm sitting there going, yeah, right, dude, I need to go like, ah, or whatever emoji I'm going to do, right? Otherwise, they're going to go, what does that mean? What, what, what does that mean? So we're trying to add and even kind of sort of humanize these digital texts because they could really be read wrong. So the problem is, when you have, listen, if you haven't developed as a young person how to have that interaction with people face to face, and all it's really largely been is digitally, you're learning how to, to emote through emojis, but not how to emote for real. We're going to have a group of a bunch of socially inept people, unfortunately. This is terrifying to me, frankly. Dr. Greenfield was told by a teacher of 30 years that she had noticed a sharp decline in the ability of her pupils to understand others. The teachers are seeing it. They're not even communicating as peers with one another effectively. In addition, Dr. Greenfield pointed out that autistic people who usually find it hard to communicate were particularly comfortable using computers. Of course, she says, we do not know whether the current increase in autism is due more to increased awareness and diagnosis of autism or whether it can, if there is a true increase, be in a way linked to an increased prevalence among people spending, of spending time in screen relationships. And so some people don't even know how to have a face-to-face -face literal relationship with people and all they can do is have these online relationships now. And then they'll finally say, hey, why don't we meet up and meet? And they don't even, they'll literally stand there and don't even know what to say. It's true. It's what's going on. Because we're not learning how, oh, well, you know, when you're standing there in front of somebody, you know, you don't go, hey, fist pump all the time. Hey, fist pump all the time. Hey, 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 you know, but that's what we're doing online all the time. That's a silly example. But the reality is we don't know, we haven't learned the tools in normal face-to-face -face interaction because mom and dad are on their screens too and we're not even having it with the kids. Sue Palmer author of A Toxic Childhood says in her book, children should be kept away from computer games until they are seven. Most games only trigger the flight or fight region of the brain rather than the vital areas responsible for reasoning. We are seeing, continuing on, we are seeing 
children's brain development damaged because they do not engage in the activity they have engaged in for millennia, and that is being face-to-face with each other. In 2015, Professor Greenfield told the Australian to remember her claims only apply to disproportionate time online. So we're going back now to, to uh, Dr. Sue Palmer. Here's what she says. I'm sorry, no, no, no. We're going back to um, Professor Greenfield. She says, I've never suggested that reasonable use of the internet damages the adolescent brain. However, intense use of the internet and video games does indeed lead to changes in the physical brain comparable to drug abuse. Some teens are now using up to 18 hours of technology a day. And by the age of one, 14% of children are spending at least one hour per day using mobile media. Recent research reveals the topics. I'm sorry, I, I need to go back where I just was. What she found in all the recent research that Dr. Greenfield was, was, was studying out, she decided to write a book called Mind Change. She looked over, two, and she cites over 250 reviewed, peer-reviewed medical papers containing all the supporting evidence of her findings. Her book has been described by several reviewers as the most extensively referenced book of its kind. And this is where she says that children are now, teens are using up to 18 hours of technology per day, and by one, 14% of kids are already playing with these devices uh, for an hour, or they're watching videos or whatever mom and dad have put in front of them. She writes, the topics in the book, they span neuroscience, psychology, sociology, and many other disciplines. The goal was not to produce simplistic sound bites but to encourage informed debate about how technology can and is changing our minds. Professor Greenfield said, the criticism of her work in the beginning was encouraging, saying this, several years ago, many were dismissive of the suggestion that technology could shape the mind. Now there appears to be a debate on how rather than if. And this is from a top, neuroscientist and researcher. So, I want to, in conclusion, I want to encourage you to be careful with these devices. They're not just some little telephone like we used to have. You know, a cell phone used to be just for that, calling people. But now it's a full-on multimedia, multi-user experience to where if you're not careful, how you're surfing and what you're surfing and how often you're surfing, it can and it is already changing your neurology. It's changing physiologically our brains and our body. And so I want to encourage you, be careful. At least take a break from it. Does that make sense? Tomorrow we're going to look at specifically brain hacking and social media, and how social engineers of today are specifically hacking our brains. I alluded to it a little bit. And then we'll dive deep into social media, discovering the blessings and the curses. So God bless you, and may your names remain in the book of life. Let's have a a closing prayer.
Gracious Heavenly Father, as we have been looking at a lot of information yesterday and today, I pray that tomorrow as we meet, that you would help us to make it practical. What can we do to fight this? What can we do to not allow the devil and the world to hijack our brain, but rather to open it to you in your still small voice? Father, you have promised that you will give us a new mind and a new heart. And this is what we desire, not what the devil has designed. He's trying to rewire it so we don't even listen to you and the leading of the Holy Spirit. We give our minds over to you, Father, and say, please rewire them back to how they should be and help us to be more like you as we can testify to the world that we have been with our Savior and we can glorify your name and even vindicate your character by the way in which we live our lives. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.